Well, Father, take your word now and help us to make application to our lives and living. May your Holy Spirit teach us and instruct us. Thank you, Lord, for these great events surrounding the conclusion of your life and ministry here on earth. Father, thank you for the humble obedience of the Lord Jesus who took upon himself the form of a servant became obedient even unto death. Father, may our hearts be tender. May our minds be available. We are certainly busy people and we fill up our time completely. And so we may be here this morning ill-prepared to sit still and to hear and to listen. So may your Holy Spirit just calm us and quiet us, give us rest even as... We hear your word and may it renew us and strengthen us for another week of being light and salt in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray now. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles at this time and turn to Luke chapter 19. It is Luke's account of this event that we call the triumphal entry. And I was interested to hear this week as our president went to Europe for the G20 summit. Um, some of the details uh, in, in a general form of what it takes for a king or a president uh, to visit a city. I understand that um, uh, President Obama had um, over 500 people in his entourage that traveled. There were multiple large uh, jet aircraft. One of the aircraft had um, transported just vehicles that they would need once they were on the ground. There were weeks of preparation. Some of you uh, have a lot of insight in what it takes as Secret Service or um, security detail for a trip like that. And they had to examine the whole city, the rooms and so forth, and plan out every step and make sure that he would be kept safe, such as the life uh, and, and times in which we live for world leaders as we open to Luke chapter 19, what a contrast we see as King Jesus comes into Jerusalem. There is an entourage of people following him around at this time in his ministry. And in a moment, I'll read Luke's account, and you'll see that he will reference this following of people because of the miracles. And I hope you'll recall from John's account in, that we read in our scripture reading that particularly this resurrecting of Lazarus back to life has caused a real buzz. And it hadn't happened that long ago. And a lot of people, some as curiosity seekers, others as converts to, the, to, the, to following Christ, are, are just creating a lot of hubbub and a hum around him as he travels. I don't know how well you know your New Testament or the chronology of these days in Christ's life, but know that as we uh, read in our passage in John and as we read now in Luke, that uh, he has just taken a day to rest at his friend Mary Martha, friends Mary Martha and Lazarus home, and then the next day, this uh, Sunday, some say Monday, he's coming into Jerusalem, and he has been talking for some time to his disciples about going to Jerusalem, and he knows that this is the countdown now that's really beginning, kind of like watching a, a shuttle launch, and everybody's in countdown mode, and the time is coming, and the, the countdown's going to happen, and bam, and 
all that God has planned in Christ is going to come to fruition here this week. It's going to be a busy week. There's going to be a lot of teaching that will go on. That familiar passage in Matthew chapter 25, for example, where there's an extensive discourse on how the last days will be. Um, this, that will be taught this week. Uh, towards the end of the week, this is when he will meet for the Passover, probably on Wednesday night. He will meet for the Passover supper. And remember, having gone to prepare the upper room, and that's where he will, will meet with his disciples. And that's where he'll say, this is my body when he breaks the bread. That's where he'll say it for the first time. This is my body which is broken for you. This is the week where he will pour the wine and he will say, this is my blood which is shed for you. And uh, this is uh, after he enters Jerusalem, the next day he's going to go to the temple. And it's that familiar story, similar to the time early in his ministry. Here it happens again the last week of his ministry, where he quotes from Jeremiah and he quotes from Isaiah. And he looks around the temple court and he sees the abuse of worship that has been going on. It, it, it is nothing more than a, a convenience matter. What's happened in this time as the as they've come to the temple to worship, and you know they're still under the Old Testament system, so they have to bring a sacrificial animal, maybe a dove if you're poor, or a lamb or a calf, depending on what the, the sacrifice was for and how it was to be carried out. And so people would still follow through with the ritual of worship, but they missed the hard attitude of it by not preparing for worship. It's easy for us to do that, isn't it? And they would come to the temple and they'd say, oh, it's time to worship. Let's run down and worship. And so they would go into the temple court to worship. And there the money changers would have these offerings available where for an inflated price, you could buy the items needed for your worship. And, and something that would be just pennies or you would have at home because you didn't prepare and you come to the temple, but now you want to jump through the hoops of worship, they would charge tenfold or even more for like a little dove. And they did it not to facilitate worship. They did it to make money off of the ritual and routine of worship. Jesus then walks in that temple. Remember the scene? This is the next day after the Passover that we're, or after the triumphal entry that we're going to talk about today. He'll walk in there quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house is to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen Jesus do it? Walk up there, grab those cages and fling them. And feathers are flying and squacking going on and sliding stuff off the table and kick over the table and money rolling across the stone floor. And the look on his face, and I think they just got out of there. Just got out of there. So that's what's happening. He's going to spend this entire week with his disciples. Later in the week, of course, it'll be there in the garden where he will pray. The disciples will go to sleep. Hours before, Judas will betray him with a kiss. The disciples will sleep and the Lord Jesus will come up and he'll say, couldn't you pray with me just one hour? And as we read in John's Gospel in our scripture reading this morning, it wasn't until after he was glorified, that is, after he was resurrected, appeared to them, that it all started to come together. Oh, so that's all that was happening this final week. You weren't coming to set up a political kingdom where we argued who would sit at your right hand. You were coming to give your life a ransom for many. 
what a reality it was for them. And then they became the powerful preachers of the gospel, giving their own lives for this gospel, not for any kind of a kingdom that was to overthrow Rome, as all of Israel longed for these days, to see Jerusalem set free from Roman rule. And so that's the setting. We're one week away from the cross and the resurrection, essentially, and he's now finally getting to Jerusalem. Let's read Luke's account. Let's draw some illustration or let's, let's discern what's happening here in this scene of the, what we call the triumphal entry and let's draw a few life application lessons from it. Luke chapter 19 verse 28 and uh, unlike a king who sent a big entourage ahead of him and has the way prepared, it seems quite spontaneous what is happening but it's done according to God's perfect timing. Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And that would be namely raising Lazarus from the dead, but others as well. And they said, remember in John he quoted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king who comes riding on a colt. And Luke records that they said also, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Wow. Starts happy, ends pretty seriously, doesn't it? Well, what are we going to get out of this passage? It, it's kind of an interesting story, and we know it if we've been around church world very long. Our children go to Sunday school and, and junior church, and they draw with their green crayons pictures of palm leaves. Or they, if Mrs. Toothman's got around to it, she's found a place that has palm branches, and they take them out to your car, and they fall apart, and you're cleaning them out of your car for the next three weeks, and we're picking them up out of the hallway here. And, and you know, Jesus came to town. Hurrah, hurrah. Well, what's it all about? What do we see here? What's happening? How do we discern? Because it, it's triumphant in a sense, but then when we see Jesus looking over the city and Israel has rejected him and the tears flow down his face, in a sense you could say a better phrase for it would be the untriumphal entry. Angels. 
Let's take and look at this passage now and, and let's discern what we think is happening here, okay? The first thing I want you to see that I don't want you to miss that is so significant in this passage, it's easy to overlook, but it's something that is a common thread in the life and ministry of Jesus. But um, the number one observation, number, observation number one that I want us to make is that Christ in this story demonstrates his authority. Christ demonstrates his authority. One of the common uh, themes in all four of the Gospels, they mention this concept that when Jesus is coming down uh, from Beth, Bethany there and he's coming approaching the town, he tells his disciples to go get this donkey. And all four of the Gospels take the time to kind of detail this story. We know from Matthew's Gospel, I believe it is, that what he does there, that they also bring the mare with it because it's such a young, it's a young enough colt, it's, it's old enough to support a man's weight, it's young enough that it's not been broken to ride, and they bring the mare with it. Um, is that what you call a female donkey? The mare, and, and they bring the, the donkey colt with it, and... Uh, they follow through and they go and Jesus knows where it is. He tells them what to do and even says what to say if they say, what are you doing with my colt? And you can picture this pretty easily, can't you? And some Bible commentaries raise the point that this is relatively familiar neighborhoods to Jesus and that he knows a man who has a donkey that has a colt and that he knows that guy and all you have to do is say, the Lord needs him and they'll know who you mean by the Lord and they'll be glad to give it to you. And, uh, you, you know, you have things like this. I, I do this quite a bit, um, um, maybe abusing my role as pastor sometime. I'll say, go over to so-and-so's house and get their skill saw and tell them that Pastor Van said you could get it. <laughs> as soon as they say that, oh, okay, I go over there. Pastor Van said you have a skill saw. Yeah, you need my skill saw? Sure. I think that's how they always react, as long as Pastor Van said it. <laughs> And it's a little bit that mindset. Jesus knew these people. Tell them the Lord has not that van and the Lord are equal at all. But it's a parallel, you know, you understand the mindset. And they say, the Lord has need of it. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think that much like we see throughout the Lord's ministry, we simply see the authority of his deity on display. We see here nothing short of his omniscience and his omnipotence. Yes, he limited his use of his godness, so to speak, and his power as Almighty God. This is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. He's the one who created the cult. He's the one that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, all things were made by him and for him. Interesting, isn't it? The creator of the universe asking to borrow something that he already owns. But Jesus often displayed his authority through these kinds of acts. Because look what happens. In his omniscience, all-knowingness, omni, everywhere, science, spell it out, it spells the word science, all-knowledge or science, omnipotence, omni, everything, potence, power, in his knowledge and in his power, he just says to his disciples, there's a donkey over there in town. Go over there. It's going to have a colt. Bring it. And if they stop you, just say the Lord has need of it. They go. And you can see the guys. They're up on the porch. These two men walk up, start untying the colt. Yo, hey, what are you doing? Hey, the Lord has need of it. I think that's what we're going to change our expression to now. 
Not that Pastor Van said we could borrow it for the church work. This is the Lord's work. And so whenever we need something, we'll send somebody to your house. We'll say, you know, can we borrow your chainsaw? The Lord has need of it. And you should say, of course. He owns it, right? They're doing a work project at church. That's what you'll know. It's the Lord's work. The Lord has need of it. And that's kind of neat. I kind of like that expression. The Lord has need of it. Need it? The Lord has need of it. Take it. It's not mine. But I think what we have here in the same way, think about this. Then don't we often see Jesus like this? Walking up on the shore, early in his ministry, and there were the disciples, tired and weary from fishing all night and catching no fish. And Jesus says, have you caught any fish? Nope, fish aren't moving tonight. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. I don't think so. I've been fishing all night. I'm not throwing that net out one more time. I've thrown it out a thousand times tonight and we haven't got anything but seaweed. I'm going home. I'm going to eat some bacon and eggs. Well, not bacon. I'm going to eat some eggs and some toast <laughs> and I'm going to go to bed. All right? And Jesus said, just do it. Cast the net. You know the rest of the story, don't you? Cast the net. And the net's filled with fishes. What's he doing? He's demonstrating as he just passes through and his connection with these people who he is in the authority that he has over nature. It happened all... Jesus, wake up! Jesus, wake up! We're going to drown. This boat's going to tip over. Caught me by surprise, guys. Of course not. Peace, be still. His authority... His deity on, on display, isn't it? And so as we celebrate the, the, the Passion Week and as we see our Lord coming in, it's nothing short of another demonstration of His authority, making another statement. People, I am who I say I am. Don't you think it would occur to them as well? This colt, never before ridden upon. You know what happens when you ride upon an unbroken colt? You get a jolt. You get knocked off. Not our Lord. They throw their coat on it. He sits on it. Off he goes. And, and you, you have to say, how does he do that? He's no ordinary man. In fact, what we've just seen is omnipotence. How did he know that cult was here? That's his omniscience. We see that we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming into town here. Second thing we see in the story after the cult story, it involves the cult. Notice that he tells him to untie it. They put his coat on it. He says, verse 34, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. This is a king's welcome. They're anticipating, of course, a great political shift. In their minds, they don't get it yet. They long to be free from Roman oppression, but what is Jesus doing right now? Don't miss this moment of significance. Second thing we see, not only has he demonstrated his authority or his deity, but in a like manner, he authenticates his identity. He authenticates his identity here. What do I mean by that? Let's do something together we haven't done in a long time, if ever. Let's turn to the book of Zechariah. 
You say, oh man, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Here's how you do it. Flip back to Matthew. Everybody knows where Matthew is, right? Flip to Matthew and then take your left hand and turn through the Italian prophet Malachi. Okay? And then you get to Zechariah. There he is, right there, Zechariah. Right there. You know when Zechariah lived? Around the time of Nehemiah. Back when they were rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls. This is uh, essentially, for all practical purposes, 500 years before Jesus is on the earth. And Zechariah was a priest and a prophet, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and turn to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And notice what he says here. And this is a very important point in the Palm Sunday story. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And that's what they did, right? They're shouting and rejoicing. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Look at it. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You can turn back to Luke chapter 19. But what I want you to observe here in the, our second observation of our story today, the first being that he demonstrates his authority and even his deity. He now authenticates his identity and even his deity here again, his godness. Zechariah, 500 years ago, predicted that when Messiah comes, and they knew this scripture, and they were longing for Messiah. No, they didn't put all the details together, but Jesus, fulfilling scripture in front of their eyes, gets on a colt, the foal of this donkey, unbroken, and rides into Jerusalem exactly the way Zechariah said that Messiah would do it 500 years before. He can say, ah, you're, he's an imposter. He just knew the scripture and he rode in on a colt saying, I'm, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. Well, I'll grant you that you could, you could fake riding in on the donkey, but let's get to the weekend. You can't fake the resurrection from the dead. And it was the same guy. And so Jesus comes in on his donkey the way Zechariah said it would happen 500 years before What's he doing? It's as though there's a bright neon light flashing over him. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! This is the king! Here he is. Here he is exactly the way Zechariah said. You know, there were many prophecies, weren't they? For the first coming of Christ. And the way you need to think of the first coming of Christ is really starting before his birth with Mary um, you know, and the prophecies about Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem, and then he's, he's born, and then his 33-year life, his three-year ministry span, all of that are the details of the first coming of Christ. We call it the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation means putting on flesh. And in God's perfect time, Galatians 4, 4 says, at just the right time, God sent his Son you know, if you've been here, we're going through Genesis. And what have we seen over and over in the life, in the historical chronology of humankind? God gives them a chance. They mess up, turn away. God judges sin. God gives them a chance. They follow God. They mess up. They turn to sin. Over and over and over. God always is showing them, you can't do it on your own. Ultimately, the ultimate form of communication 
I will become a human. I will put on flesh. I will come to them. That's the first coming of Christ. And the Bible is filled with prophecies. There's over a hundred different specific prophecies about this first coming of Christ. You know some of them pretty well. You haven't thought about them for a while because Christmas is over, for example. Remember what Isaiah said? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What? A virgin will conceive and give birth. That's exactly how it happened, isn't it? Right? And in Micah, he said what? He said that you, Bethlehem, though you are just a little obscure village, out of you, that's where the Savior will be born. And over and over, these prophecies were given. And it goes through the death the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. There are prophecies in scriptures about the fact that Jesus, years before, in the Old Testament prophets said, he'll be buried in a borrowed tomb. King David, when he wrote, he prophesied years before, and in fact, they didn't even know it until Jesus lived it out, that it was a pro- that none of his bones would be broken. Remember, they walked up to the cross with their war clubs and broke the legs of the thieves, and they walk up to Jesus, oh, 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 don't do that. Just stick him with your spear. Having no idea they were puppets in the hands of the prophets. In essence, they were simply fulfilling scripture and didn't even know it. They didn't break his legs. Not a bone was broken. Exactly the way the scriptures said. Judas, in the story of Judas, the prophets told all about, they told exactly how much that Jesus would be betrayed for and exactly what would happen to that money. Over and over in his first coming, there are multiple prophecies lived out before their very eyes. And listen, as we're on the road into Jerusalem this day, and we see him coming on the colt of a donkey, and we see them throwing down their coats, and we hear what they're saying, we are seeing Scripture fulfilled before our very eyes, therefore authenticating the very identity of who this is. It's Beyond coincidence, this is who he is. Exactly the way scripture says it. Thirdly, in this passage, I think it's interesting to note that Christ presents himself in full majesty. He presents himself in full majesty. I think this is a great part of the story. He's coming into town. Hosanna, Hosanna, praise to the king. And they're excited because they think their taxes are going to go down starting like next week. They just don't get it. But the Pharisees, of course, are very disturbed. And as we read in John's passage in our scripture reading this morning, you know what's going on in the Pharisees' mind, right? And we saw this dramatized beautifully uh, yesterday with 55 Alive over at Emmanuel Bible Church, how the Pharisees plotted and and they wanted to kill Jesus. And not only were they going to kill Jesus, did you catch what they were going to do? They are going to get old poor Lazarus and kill him, die for the second time. It's like... Get rid of that guy. Why? Because we can't stand that they're following after Jesus. And they say, hey, teacher, rabbi, yo, guy on the colt, tell these people to knock it off. They're treating you like you're the king of kings, like you're the Messiah, like you're God. And look what Jesus turns and says to them. Let me tell you, Pharisees, if they quiet their voices, these stones will cry out. Because I am who I am. And here Jesus, this last week of his ministry, acknowledges his kingship, receives it in majesty, being treated like a king, 
at a time when, remember always before, he would heal the blind and the lame and so forth. Then what would he say to them? Don't, go don't tell anybody about this. Of course, they'd go dancing and doing cartwheels and tell everybody. But this time, he receives it. He's making an announcement. You can't miss it, Jerusalem, basically. Here I am. In all the noise and attention, here I am. But fourthly, let's see how it ends. As he approached Jerusalem, verse 41, and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, even if you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you, he's going to make a prophecy, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You have to recognize that this is the culmination of rejection. There has been a window of time for three years where Jesus has been saying over and over, here I am, I'm your king, I'll set you free from your sin. Here I am. I will point you to God. I, I will fulfill the law in front of your eyes. I will take away the burden of your sin. And what did Israel do? What did Israel do? Get that guy out of our town. Over and over, didn't they? Jesus and the disciples, everywhere they went, he would do miracles. People would rejoice and follow. But the religious leaders and the authorities and the community leaders, out of here. Get him out of here. Or they'd say... Get that guy up here on the edge of town. Let's push him off a cliff. Let's kill that guy. And they rejected him. They rejected him. They rejected him. They rejected him over and over. It's even almost funny sometimes, comical. It's not funny, but it is funny. I was thinking about in John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That great story, remember? Again, I mean, what a picture of his authority. What a picture of his identity. What a picture of his deity. He finally gets there. Before he gets there, though, they send word that the one you love, your good friend Lazarus, is sick, Lord. You know the story pretty well. And Jesus waits. And finally he says, let's go, but let's go through Samaria, where, where he says to go. And I think that it's Thomas, the skeptic, says, oh, yeah, okay, well, let's go. Let's go get killed with Jesus. What's his point? Everywhere he goes, people want to throw rocks at him. He gets rejected everywhere he goes. And here it, it culminates at the end here as he sits and oversees the city. Uh, he loves them. And he sees them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, I'm your shepherd and I would herd you to new life in green pastures. I will make you lie down beside still waters. I'll restore your soul. I'll make you to dwell in heavenly places forever and ever. And they said... Let's crucify him. But notice, number four, that Christ indicates here the tragic nature of missed opportunity. The tragic nature of missed opportunity. He makes a prophecy that is horrible. And if you get your history book out and you read in 70 AD, do you know what the Romans did? They came in and they sacked 
Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the men and the women and the children. And the blood ran in the streets. And they burned the temple. And the temple was filled with gold items and things hanging on the wall that were of valuable gold. And the fire burned and the gold melted down in the rocks. And the Roman soldiers took their pry bars and pried, about the, pried out the rocks so they could get the gold that had melted. And not one stone was left upon another at the temple. And in just 40 years... From the day Jesus says this, prophecy becomes fulfilled right in front of them. Why? Why does it happen? Why did they get slaughtered? Why did they die? Because they failed to receive Christ. That's what he says. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God has come to you in the form of Jesus Christ and you rejected him and you will die for it. My friends, that is a horrible statement. That does not give me the warm fuzzies. That does not make me say, peace, love, dove, I love Jesus. Let's eat some bird seed and smoke weed or whatever you do. This, Jesus isn't like kumbaya, sit around and, you know, do whatever you do, knit daisy chains. Jesus comes in, gets in their grill and said, you rejected me, you're going to die for it. He said this over and over in his teaching ministries. Read the Gospels. The kingdom of God is like a man who has a house and, and sooner or later he gets up and he shuts the door and once the door is shut, everybody on the outside can't come in and there will be darkness out there and gnashing of teeth and wailing and it will be horrible and they'll want to come in. Have your lamps trimmed and your oil ready and be waiting for the bridegroom to come. Because if you don't, he's going to call for the banquet and he's going to have the banquet and if you're left outside, you can never come to the banquet and it'll be utter darkness and it'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oh, it gives me the warm fuzzies. What's the point? The point is that there is a window of time for decision making and the window doesn't last forever. We had this picture with Noah's flood, didn't we? There was a day when the door went shut and God's grace ran out and his wrath fulfilled the demands of his righteous holiness. It's a horrible thing. Christ in this triumphal entry does what? He demonstrates his authority over nature, identifying himself through his omnipotence and his omniscience. He authenticates his identity and his deity. He fulfills scripture in front of their eyes. He presents himself in full majesty. Yes, I am who you say. Can't get any clearer than that. You're kind of like saying, Jesus, why don't you just tell us who you are? This is who I am. Why do you always teach in parables? Well, this week I'm not teaching in parables. This week I'm telling you, this is who I am. I'm the king. Shout Hosanna. I'm here to save you. But then he weeps, sitting on that colt with tears streaming down his cheeks. And he identifies for them and indicates the tragic nature of the missed opportunity that Israel had. Can you imagine standing before the Lord at the great white throne judgment for sinners one day and having been alive and a leader at the time in Israel when Jesus was there and to have to bow your knees before him and you have to acknowledge him as Lord of the universe and you're the one that wanted to push him off a cliff on the other side of town. You're the one who said, get him out of here. He is an illegitimate child. 
We don't want him around here. Can you imagine? That's powerful, isn't it? So what do we do here? Let's wrap it up and go home with some application. First of all, I think there's a lesson to be learned. There's a picture to be seen. And there's a warning to be heeded. First of all, out of this passage, I think there's a lesson to be learned. And it has to do with this emphasis I made on the fulfillment of Scripture with His first coming. And here's the lesson I get out of this. Listen closely, will you? I think it's easily missed. But I think it's a very important application. I just talked for a few minutes about how Jesus came in, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 right before their very eyes, and many other prophecies. The lesson that I get out of this is that if in the first coming of Christ, every prophecy was fulfilled literally before their eyes, then when I open my Bible and I read about the second coming of the king, I have to believe that they're going to be fulfilled literally right in front of our eyes. You see, there's a great movement, in, even in evangelicalism today, to say that the second coming of Christ is a very spiritual thing, that it's not really literal, and that it's fulfilled by Jesus just kind of living in your heart. There won't really be a millennial reign of Christ. There won't be this great tribulation. The book of Revelation is just picture stories about how it might be, and it's, the, it's sin. And in fact, most of it was fulfilled in the cataclysm that took place when Rome attacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That's really when much of the book of Revelation took place, in 70 A.D. But we see promise after promise, don't we? We see, we see teaching after teaching in the New Testament that there is a second coming. Jesus himself looked at his disciples, didn't he say, according to Acts chapter 1, back up just a minute, in Acts chapter 1, remember, after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and they stood there gazing up into heaven, and the angel spoke to him, and what did he say? Men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring up into heaven? Don't you know that, well, because he just went up right in front of me, that's why I'm staring up into heaven. Don't you know that this same Jesus who goes up before you today will come again in the same manner? What is that, spiritual? That's a prophecy. That's a prediction that Jesus is going to come in the air down. In John chapter 14, verse 1, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Guys, relax. Rest. Do not be anxious. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Is that spiritual? His first coming was carried out in detailed literalness. I believe his second coming has to be treated the same way. You don't mess around with it. If Jesus said he's coming back, he's coming back. He hasn't come back yet. Apostle Paul said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. We say, oh, dead bodies aren't going to come out of the ground and be reunited with their spirit in the air, and then we'll be caught up with them and shoot right through the ceiling. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that you will be changed and that which was sown in, in mortality and in death will be raised in immortality. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies, if we are alive and remain at the second coming of Christ, will be changed and transformed, and up we'll go. We'll be able to go right through the ceiling. 
It's a new body you'll have in a moment in twinkling of an eye when that trumpet sounds. To meet the Lord in the air. Part of his coming. The first phase of his second coming. It says, prophesied clearly, that his feet are going to come down to this Mount of Olives right there. And when his feet hit the mount, it's going to split wide open. He's going to conquer his enemies, Revelation says, with the sword, the word that comes out of his mouth. Listen. Why would I hold to the literal first coming of Christ detailed in prophecy, fulfilled literally in front of my eyes, and then say, oh, all that stuff, you can't really understand it, and it's not really going to happen, and it's kind of spiritual stuff. Let's pray so we can go eat our refreshments. I'm telling you, the lesson to be learned here is that if the first coming was fulfilled so literally in front of our eyes, even riding a colt right into Jerusalem, the second coming is going to be just as literal as far as I can tell. Don't mess around. Do you see the stage being set? Do you see some of the prophecies of Scripture of a one-world government, of a one-monetary system, of a one-world religion? If you can't see the stages being set for that... You're helpless and hopeless. It's, it's, it's like it's in bright neon sign what's going on around us. Now, I don't know when he's going to return, but it's going to happen. Secondly, this is a picture. And I think it's important to notice that Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he acknowledges that he's the king. And he says, here I am. All you have to do is receive me. But notice this. The picture is one of a gentle shepherd, one of a gentle prophet, a gentle king. He had the authority to come in on a big white stallion with an army with swords flashing and he comes in gentle riding on a colt because Jesus never forces himself on anybody. He just tells you the truth and it's the truth that'll set you free. He invites you to come unto him. He'll set you free from your sin today. A gentle, loving savior willing to lay down his life for you and for me, what a picture of humility and humble obedience. Thirdly, not only do we have a lesson to be learned, that prophecy will be fulfilled literally, we have a picture to behold, and that's of a gentle, loving Savior. But finally, kind of getting strong again is a warning to be heeded because look what he says to them. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The warning is, you have to recognize it when God comes to you. Because if you reject, it could be everlastingly too late. I have this picture in my brain of old Ray Toothman. He was a great guy, huh? And, he, you know, Ray was a computer guy. And he had this, I don't know, it was a Blackberry or what it was, this handheld Palm Pilot thing. And he's over in the ICU at Jefferson Memorial just a couple days before he will essentially lose consciousness for the last time in his life. He knows something's really wrong. And I thought two things. I thought, what a contrast between a man of God and a man who's goofing around with the invitation to accept Christ and letting the window close. Ray said to me, Pastor Van, he's playing with this calendar. Get out of the way, would you? I'm watching the Steelers game. Guy's got an aneurysm. Guy doesn't know what's going to happen. He said, you know what? I'm not worried a bit, Pastor Van. He said, you can't threaten me with heaven. Said, Just tell everybody that 
If I go now, just tell everybody I'll see them there. Need I any more evidence for a faith than watch a godly man die? How much different than a guy who wants to watch the Steelers game to fill his mind because he wants to not think about these things? My friend, the window only stays open for so long. And one day you can be playing with your Palm Pilot watching the Steelers game, and the next day you're in a deep coma with an aneurysm burst over in Johns Hopkins University, and you never come to again. Think you're going to get saved on your deathbed? You're playing with fire. What did Israel think? God condemned them. It's a warning, isn't it? that today is the day of salvation. You say, Pastor Van, that's what I love about your church. I just get so encouraged on Sunday morning. <laughs> Listen, to have the words of everlasting life in our hands and not speak the truth in love, I refuse to do that. I'm not going to tell you everything's okay, because it's not. We have a sin problem, and we need a Savior and we have one. And he rode into Jerusalem that day. And he fulfilled it right in front of their eyes. My friend, the warning today is, is that people who reject Christ, while they have him there calling on him, is that if you don't recognize the time of God's coming to you, you can face in eternal judgment. Today is the day of salvation. In fact, God does love you. And he loves you so much that even though you're a sinner that he sent his only son to die on the cross in your place because his holiness demanded a penalty for our sin. And we couldn't pay the price. But then King Jesus walks in and he says, I'll take their sin upon me. So that when a holy God looks at us, he doesn't have to see our sin and our issues. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen. And so will you accept this King Jesus? He came to Jerusalem that day. He died on a cross. He was buried and he rose again, authenticating his message. He ascended into heaven 40 days later and at a time unknown to us, he will return again in the same manner that he went up into heaven. Are you ready? We're planning a sunrise service next week, but he could come in the meantime. You never know. Let's bow our heads and pray, please. As I close in prayer, would you acknowledge your own heart and mind today? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you recognize your sinfulness? Are you playing games with Jesus or have you recognized that He alone died on that cross? He alone satisfies the demands of His holy heavenly Father. He alone was sent here on this mission to take our sin, to pay the price. That's why He cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because God can't look at sin. And Jesus, according to Paul, became sin for us. Died the death, paid the penalty, but it's not automatic. The Bible says, whosoever has the Son has life, hath life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that he's the Christ. Know that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. In the quietness of this moment, you can cry out to God on your own. Something like this, Father, I believe that Jesus is the King, and I know that I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sin, 
and I accept his forgiveness as a free gift. Will you make me your child? Don't have to do anything. Just accept this free gift. And so, Father, you know our hearts and our minds today, and, and you know the things that distract us and the things that hold us back from making certain serious decisions, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would have real freedom to work among us. Thank you this Palm Sunday for this glimpse of Jesus in all of his authority, identified as according to the prophets, and yet warned by the fact that there is a necessary time to accept this salvation message. As we go our way, may we be careful to consider and ponder these things, and may your Holy Spirit do his work in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.